Well, we've, I think we've been over this before, but if you want someone to smile and nod at you and maybe give you a hug and then forget what you've said, come talk to me about something. If you actually want something to happen, please talk to Kathy. Um, okay, we are uh, beginning a new sermon series this morning. It's called The Resurrection Effect. And if you'll, you'll look at your bulletin, uh, on the cover we have new art that's really representing this series. We'll be in this series for the next six weeks or so. We're going to be talking about John 20 and 21 and really seeing the way that Jesus' resurrection, the resurrected Jesus, the, the light that he shines in different people uh, after he's resurrected and visits them. And this, this art is is fascinating. I think I really like it. Our artist did a really great job with it. The, the flower, of course, represents new growth. Um, flowers uh, always represent new growth, you know, for us. And it's fun in springtime to see flowers coming up. And then, of course, a rose, you know, is oftentimes a symbol of love. So we get this idea of resurrection, of love, of newness uh, coming with that rose. But it's set on a backdrop of a stained glass window. And if you've seen stained glass before, you know that the light, the same light comes in that whole window but it actually shines a little differently. It looks a little different in each of those panes, representing really the way that we'll see over John 20 and 21, how the light of the resurrection, same light, beauty, glory, uh, wonder, wonderment, if that's even a word, uh, how it shines even differently in each of these people that Jesus uh, interacts with and how we are called actually to see that same light shine in us as well. So that's where we'll be for the next few weeks. We are in John chapter 20, uh, the second half of John chapter 20 this morning, and it's printed in your bulletin there. I'm going to read from verse 1. And then we'll pick up and you'll, you'll find it there in your bulletin starting at verse 11. But just listen here to the first 10 verses. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. And she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and she went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. And she said to them, they have taken our Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter, and he reached the tomb first, and stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and he went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. And then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. And then verse 11, But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and she said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. 
Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that she had said, and that he had said these things to her. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that uh, we get to, to hold it and flip through it on our own and read this amazing account of your resurrection. Lord, uh, it is the faithful witness of those who have gone before us, Lord, that has reached our ears, even us in this strange place of New Braunfels, Texas, 2,000 years later. And here we are celebrating the greatest thing that's ever happened in the world. Thank you, Lord, for letting this good news reach us. We pray now that you would open our eyes, that you would soften our hearts, that we would be changed by your word and by your grace this morning. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. There was a Craigslist ad uh, that pretty recently gained some some internet fame, kind of went around the internet, and it was an ad uh, advertising the need for a generic dad to attend a barbecue. I'm just going to read you some of uh, this ad. It was a group of 20-somethings. They wanted a generic dad to come to their barbecue. Here's what the duties were for this dad. Grilling hamburgers and hot dogs and drinking beer. Referring to all attendees present as either big chief, sport, or champ. Talking about dad things like lawnmowers, building a deck, and Jimmy Buffett songs. There were additional requirements as well for this generic dad. He had to be uh, had to have eight, 18 years experience as a dad and at least 10 years experience grilling and preferred names of Bill, Randy, or Dave. They needed somebody that could come and run their barbecue. And, you know, this is a humorous, fun way of illustrating. Really, we all kind of want somebody like that around. We want somebody around who knows us and makes us feel like we belong and makes us feel comfortable and leads us and guides us in some way or at least knows how to use a grill. There's a little bit more serious example if you've seen the television series 13 Reasons Why. This is a a fictional account of a high school girl who takes her life and then actually records, before she does, she records all the reasons why she's going to do it. And I've not seen it, but I've read actually the synopsis, and even just reading over the synopsis is pretty tragic. She outlines things like being betrayed by her friends, feeling left out and exposed in different ways, uh, rumors that have been spread about her, not even being protected and led by the teachers that are around her that were supposed to be protecting her and leading her. Now, this series has garnered a lot of attention because uh, it, it paints suicide in a flattering light. And uh, it's gotten a lot of criticism because of that. And I agree with a lot of that criticism. But it's also gotten a lot of attention because a lot of the things that are exposed here are really real things. They're really real things that we struggle with. They're real things that not only high school girls, but 75-year-old men deal with. Which is that we want someone to know us. We want to feel loved and known. We want intimacy and we want it deeply. We want to feel like we belong, like we're a part of something, like we're not on the outside, but we're actually on the inside. And we want to feel like we have some sort of guidance, leadership, like there's something in some sort of direction in our lives. These are real and deep human longings. They're the things that we all long for, I think, as human beings. 
We just moved here um, just just under a year and a half ago. And i got to tell you, moving to a new place, I mean, these three things are huge. When we came to town, I mean, we were consistently asking ourselves, you know, are we going to have friends here? Is anybody going to like us? Is anybody going to know us? Are we going to have people actually that we can uh, let down our guard with and be honest with? Are we going to feel like real intimacy? And are we going to feel like we belong? I mean, we're coming to a place that's kind of an old community and people who grew up here and they've known each other for a long time. Are we just going to kind of feel like outsiders? Which, by the way, people who grew up in New Braunfels, that's a real thing. People do feel like outsiders here sometimes. So we were afraid of that. And then, you know, we're planting a church. I've never planted a church before. So I'm calling, like, everybody I know about every day. How do I do this? Help. What do I do? I need guidance. I need leadership. I'm looking for all of those things. Those are human longings. They're real things. They're things that we all deal with. Mary Magdalene, in this passage, deals with the same things. She's searching for those things. She's longing for them. She is seeking that kind of intimacy, that kind of belonging, that kind of guidance and leadership. And just like us, she oftentimes misses it. But she finds some amazing things. And she finds them most deeply in the risen Christ. And I think... Us going through and looking at this interaction between Mary and between Jesus as he has risen, as he has gloriously come out of the grave. We see actually ourselves there. We see the deep needs that we have and the way that they are met by Jesus. Now we're going to look at this uh, in, in three kind of sections. First, we're going to look at the things that um, the things that Mary misses, the ways that she misses actually the big things that are in front of her. And that's not to beat her up at all. She's actually presented as a very faithful woman in this passage, but she's just like us, and we miss it all the time. We swing and miss all the time. So we're going to look at how how she does that. Then we'll actually see what she finds. We'll see what Mary actually finds, and then how she responds. All right. So first, let's look at what she misses. Well, if you open up this passage and you read here again like we started in verse 11 or even back to verse 10, the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stayed weeping. Mary was there. She was mourning for Jesus. That's the reason she was there at the tomb is because she was mourning. Now, we don't know a whole lot about Mary Magdalene. We're not told a whole lot in the Bible, except that, uh, that, that Jesus had actually cast out, John says, seven demons out of her, just that little thing. Um, and we know that Jesus was, I mean, that Mary, excuse me, was, was faithful to Jesus, even though she was there in front of the cross, watching him be crucified. Most of his disciples have fled. Most of them had gone away at this time, and Mary was still there. And so she actually watched Jesus hang on the cross. She watched the breath go out of him. She, she listened to him cry out to the Lord and finally give up his spirit. She watched him die. And then she comes to visit his tomb where he is laid. She is overwhelmed with grief. She is overwhelmed with sadness because the one that had changed her life, the one that deeply had affected her, is now gone. Friends, it's appropriate for us to be sad in those sorts of occasions. In fact, oftentimes uh, our culture pushes out mourning. We just leave very little room for it. Traditional cultures are much better at this than we are. In our culture, we kind of just expect people to get over sadness really quickly and kind of pull themselves up and, and, and get right immediately. But that's, that's, not how, that's not how it works. In fact, Mary shows us what it's like to lose somebody that you love dearly. 
And many of you know how that feels, to mourn deeply. And so let me just say that it is appropriate. It is appropriate to mourn. If you have lost somebody that you love, if you're mourning even simply the brokenness and the sadness in this world, it is hard not to just turn on the TV and cry to see at what's going on in the world. And even to mourn what's going on in our own hearts, our own struggles with sin, our own dealings with the same things over and over and over, it's appropriate to mourn those things. Mary's grief is not inappropriate. But let me say this, it has inappropriately blinded her. Because as she is crying, she's weeping. Do you you see the irony here? She is weeping in front of an empty tomb. (laughs) Jesus is not there. He is risen and she is crying about it. She completely misses Jesus. She misses the the risen Christ because she is so sad. Because she is mourning. Because she is overwhelmed. Friends, it is possible for us to miss Jesus too. Because we are overwhelmed with the brokenness of the world. We are overwhelmed with the brokenness in the relationships in our lives, or with the reality of death and pain and sickness, or again with the struggle of our own sin, and we can be so wrapped up in that, that we actually miss the resurrection, that we miss the gospel. But when the resurrection life of Jesus actually begins to work in someone's heart, that person actually, it becomes more clear and more focused, both death and life. Both the deep sadness of this world and the beautiful joy of the gospel. We become those who can actually mourn sad things. We can enter even into lament together. And at the same time we have deep, deep hope and real joy. Don't miss the gospel. Don't miss the resurrection. Don't miss Jesus because of sadness. Alright, let's keep going. She appears there, she's weeping at the tomb, she stoops down, she looks inside, and she sees these two angels. And she asks these angels, you know, what's going on? Actually, they asked her the question first, right? Why are you weeping? She's still crying, she's looking inside, into the tomb, they ask her why she's weeping, and her answer is fascinating. She says, because they've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they have laid him. Now, she says this actually three times. If you go back into that first half of the chapter, that's the first thing that she tells Peter and John. Someone has taken Jesus and I don't know where they have laid him. And then the angels ask her, why are you crying? And she says, because they've taken my Lord, I don't know where they've laid him. And then later when she meets Jesus but thinks he's the gardener, she says, where have you taken my Lord? Where have you laid him? Three times she uses that word. Fascinatingly. Unbelievingly, unbelievably, John actually inserts another word in the midst of all of this. I want you to just look here at what he says. Having said this, this is verse 14. Mary turned around and she saw Jesus standing. The words in Greek are really similar. Laying and standing. With one really big difference. One of them means set down, laying down like a dead person would be. And the other means set up standing like a very much alive person would be it's beautiful isn't it how john just reinforces that a little bit for us mary is looking for a dead jesus she is looking for a jesus who's laying down somewhere dead and he is standing before her very much alive see grief stricken mary has been blinded by her grief maybe but she's also been blinded really by unbelief Now, Jesus had certainly used this word laid before, right? He has said that he was the good shepherd and the good shepherd would come and lay down his life for his sheep. 
He told his disciples that greater love has no man than this, that he would come and lay down his life for them. That is certainly what Jesus came to do. He came to lay down his life for us. But what Jesus also came to do was to raise that life back. And he had told his disciples it was going to happen. He had told them over and over, over and over. He had said, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed. He's going to be killed. And on the third day, he's going to be risen from the dead. Mary was struggling to believe these things. She was blinded in many ways by her unbelief that Jesus really could be raised. Maybe that's what's blinding you this morning. Maybe that's what's keeping you from Jesus this morning. Is little bits of unbelief. How could this be either true or how could it be relevant? How could we be sitting here in church talking about something that may or may not have happened 2,000 years ago? Friends, if that's the case, I understand. It's okay to struggle. But let me ask you to ask Jesus to do exactly what he does for Mary here. Which is to open her eyes. To open her eyes that she might see who he is. One of the great confessions in the Bible is made by a man who asked Jesus to heal his daughter. And as he's asking Jesus to come and heal his daughter, Jesus has this question for him. He says, do you believe that I can heal her? And the man's answer is so wonderful. He says, I believe. Help my unbelief. That's a beautiful confession. That's a good answer for us. That is a good prayer to pray. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief, even if I believe just a little and my unbelief is big. Help change that. Help my unbelief. Don't miss Jesus because of your unbelief. Alright, here's the third way she misses Jesus. John tells us that Jesus shows up right in front of her. That as she's, she's moving back away from the tomb, she's still crying. She's talked to these angels, which he doesn't even tell us how freaky that must have been. She's seen angels sitting there. She moves back and she runs into this man and she thinks he's the gardener. And she asks him, where's, where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? Where have you laid him? He's standing in front of her face. Like he's right there. This is the guy that she actually spent a lot of time with. The guy that she watched die. The guy that she knew. And she's standing right in front of him, but she can't see him. For is this possible to be really close to Jesus and to miss him? It's possible to grow up in church and to hear a lot about who Jesus is and to totally miss him. It's possible to look really religious. It's possible to feel like you've got everything together and to miss the gospel altogether. It's possible. It happened to Mary. Let me just say, if you are here and you think that your record of church attendance, your record of good deeds, your level of spirituality, your voting record, your, your standing in the society, if any of those things are the thing that you think makes God love and accept you, then you have missed Jesus. You have missed the gospel. This is where I was coming out of high school into college. I grew up in the church. I heard of Jesus all the time. I grew up with a Christian mother. It was always given to me. And I got to, I got to college. And I think I really just did think, you know, God loves me. I'm pretty sure he loves me. But I'm also pretty sure he loves me for the stuff I do. And if I keep doing those few little things that I think he cares about, then he'll keep loving me. And it wasn't until I understood the holiness of God, the depth of my sin... That I understood the amazing love and grace of Jesus Christ. I totally missed him before. (laughs) And he finally opened my eyes. 
You may be missing Jesus for all of those reasons. You may be missing him uh, because you're overwhelmed just with the brokenness of the world, or you're missing Jesus, and even though he's been in front of you this whole time, maybe it's unbelief that you're struggling with. But don't miss this, okay? Pay attention here, because this is pretty amazing. In the midst of all of this, who's the person Jesus chooses to reveal himself to first when he is resurrected? It's Mary. It's this one who had missed him over and over and over. It's Mary who he chooses to reveal himself to. Just kind of little old Mary, Magdalene. Like, it's not John, the apostle whom Jesus loved. It's not Peter, the rock upon which I will build my church. It's not any of the writers of the New Testament books. Okay, Mary didn't write any books in the New Testament. As far as we know, she did not become a pillar of the church community uh, in the first century. As far as we know, she didn't preach any great sermons. It's just Mary. That's who Jesus actually chooses to reveal himself to. This woman who is struggling with an overwhelming sense of mourning, who's struggling even with unbelief, and who's struggling even to see what's right in front of her. Jesus opens her eyes and reveals himself to her. Isn't that beautiful? That's the kind of Savior we have. The kind of Savior we have opens our eyes, even when we have closed them so oftentimes to him. All right, let's look at the second part, which is, what, what does Mary find? We saw what she misses. Let's look at what she finds. Well, remember, we began the sermon by talking about these deep needs that we have, the things that we're all searching for, the things that we're all seeking, one of them being that we really want somebody who knows us, right? We want deep intimacy in this world. We want people that can come alongside us and really feel like they are our friends, like they know us. Well, how does Jesus reveal himself to Mary? Looky here, verse 15. Jesus says, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. He uses her name. I mean, the simplest, most beautiful, most personal, most intimate words she could hear. Her name. He calls her by name. He says in John 10, I'm the good shepherd, and the good shepherd knows his sheep, and he calls them by name. That is the Savior that we, that we serve. That is the Savior that we love, is one who knows us intimately, one who knows us deeply, one who knows us by name, and who comes and approaches us tenderly as a friend who draws alongside us and knows us deeply. Look at the second way that he's revealed to her. Remember the second thing we talked about that we're seeking, that we're looking for? It's belonging, right? A a sense of being a part of something, of belonging. Well, look at this. When Jesus tells her, go and tell the disciples, what does he say? Jesus said to her, don't cling to me. I've not yet ascended to the Father, but go tell my brothers and say to them, my my what? My brothers? In John 16, he's gathered with his disciples in the upper room and he says this. He says, I'm about to be handed over to the authorities and you will all scatter. You will all leave me. You will all run away. And all the accounts that we have, almost all the disciples flee. We do see John at the foot of the cross and that's the only one. Everybody else is gone. They have hightailed it out of there. But Jesus doesn't tell Mary, listen, go tell these betrayers that I've finally come for them. 
Go tell these morons that, that, that I finally come back just like I said I would. Go tell these, these guys who have such little faith that need me to come and knock them upside the head that I've actually risen just like I said I would over and over and over and over. They're so stupid. He doesn't say that. He says, go tell my brothers. Earlier in the upper room, he had called them his friends. This is even more intimate. My brothers. And what does he say? He says, go tell them that I'm ascending to your, to my God and your God. To my father and your father. This is one of the few times actually in the gospels where Jesus says that. Your father and my father. We share the same father. You have been adopted into my family. And I'm not only your friend, I am your older brother. Augustine said this. He said the father is, is Jesus's by nature, but he's ours by grace. Not beautiful. By nature of what Jesus has done for us. He has made the father ours. He has made us sons and daughters of God. Paul talks about this all through his epistles that we have been adopted into the family of God. So we are not outsiders anymore. We belong. We are part. We are close. We are in God's family. If Jesus has worked in your hearts, that is who you are. You're not an outsider. Isn't that beautiful? How about this third thing we're looking for? For guidance, for leadership, for somebody to come and actually show us the way. Well, how does Mary address Jesus? When he comes to her and he says, he says Mary, right? He personally, he speaks her name and she replies with his name. Now, Jesus has given many names in the Gospels, but what she says is teacher, rabbi, teacher, the one who has come and has actually taught me the things that I've never heard before, who has taught with authority that I've never heard it taught before, the one whom actually my heart yearns for, my teacher, And then as she goes and she announces it to the disciples, she says, I have seen who? The Lord. The Lord is risen. So she calls him both teacher and Lord. Now that word Lord actually has a lot of weight. In Greek, which is the language that this was written in, in Greek that word is kurios. And kurios would have meant a few things. It could have meant just broadly, you know, somebody that has a higher social standing than I do. But by this time in the New Testament, by this time uh, in, in, in the first century, it had actually come to have a lot more weight even than that. Because Caesar, the Roman emperor who was in charge of all of that area of the, of, of the world, had taken the name Curios for himself. Caesar is Lord. That was the proclamation. That's what he would say and that's what he would want his subjects to say. Which is why when Christians say Jesus is Lord, it was so totally controversial and so radical because they were proclaiming that jesus is lord which means that caesar's not so not only are the, is she saying that it's this is jesus who owns all even political power but there's more too because this word kurios also would have translated the word yahweh god's covenant name in the old testament when the Old Testament was translated into Greek, if you were if you were a Jew in the first century, you probably would have spoken Greek. And so they would have translated the Old Testament into Greek so that you could read it. And when they translated God's covenant name, Yahweh, out of respect for his name, they translated it with the word kurios. You can see this actually in your, in your English Bibles. If you flip through any time you see Lord with small caps, that's what's being translated there. Kurios, then, was the name not only of Caesar, but actually the name of the Lord. In fact, his disciples would have known it as such. That this is not only the one with all immediate political authority, but this is the one with cosmic authority. This is the one with universal authority. This is the one who has created all things. That's the kind of weight that comes with this word, Lord. 
And that is who she is presenting Jesus to be, both teacher and Lord. The one who leads and guides and rules and conquers. And of course, Jesus has also shown himself deeply to be our Savior. That's what she finds. We saw what she misses. That's what she finds. Let's look then at how she responds. How does Mary respond? Because this is, this is really helpful for us. First of all, let me tell you this quick story. I, I listened to a podcast the other day, and it was a show about um, the idea of scarcity. Scarcity meaning that there's something that's, that's missing kind of in your life. And it was based on research that had been done about what happens not only to our bodies when something is scarce, but what happens to our brains. And so they had done research on people that had done these like starvation experiments. Um, and they had seen actually that people that were deeply, deeply hungry, that it changed the way that they thought. In fact, what was interesting is you would think that if you were really, really hungry, you would want your mind to go anywhere other than food, right? You would want to think about anything else other than food, but that is exactly the opposite of what happened. All of these people, all that they could think about was food. They would have them watch movies, and they would pay no attention to any of the movie except when they saw food on the screen. They would, they would think about things like becoming restaurateurs, opening restaurants when, when they were finished. They would swap recipes with one another. Their, their minds were just overwhelmed with food and it pushed everything out. There was no room for anything out. The only thing that they wanted to think about was food. The same thing happens uh, with, with a lack of money. When, when you are poor, oftentimes what happens also in your brain is that that's all that you're focused on. It pushes everything else out and it oftentimes causes people with a scarcity of money to to act very foolishly with their money because that's all that they can think about. It makes us think very foolishly in that way. The same thing happens relationally too. In fact, they had studied how, you know, lonely people, when you're lonely, oftentimes all that you want to do is find somebody that's going to be your friend. And so when you, all you want to do is find somebody to be your friend, what does that usually do to your conversation? Kind of makes it pretty bad, right? Because you're like, hey, hey, please, can you like me? Can you like me? Can you like me? Like me? Like me? Like me? And then, you know, does anybody ever want to talk to that guy? No. So those people just become more and more lonely. Isn't that the truth? When we're looking for intimacy and relationship, when that's when we feel like we're empty there, we go looking for it, and we always go looking for it in the wrong places. The places that actually we think are going to feed us and they end up making it worse for us. Just like that lonely guy at the party who no one wants to talk to. We keep desiring it, wanting to feed ourselves with it. But because we feel like we're empty, we don't get it. Belonging, same way. Guidance, leadership, we go trying to find it everywhere. That's why there's so many self-help books if you walk into a bookstore. We want it. We want it everywhere. So we're trying to pull it anything off the shelf that we can find. But what Jesus says here, what the Bible reveals for us throughout, is that God has actually given us abundantly. That if you belong to the Lord, that you don't, you're you're not dealing with scarcity. That he has actually abundantly filled you with that need for relationship, for intimacy. That he has abundantly filled us with our need for belonging. That we are full to overflowing. That he has abundantly filled us with our need for lordship and leadership and guidance. So much so that it's kind of like a sponge that's full of water. It just keeps leaking out and overflowing. We're not going to seek it to try and fill it up. We're actually overflowing. It's working the opposite way now because we're so full. So what does Mary do when she is overflowing with Jesus' abundance? When she is overflowing in this capacity of relationship and belonging, of guidance, how does she respond? 
Well, she responds in two ways. The first is that she worships. She throws herself around Jesus and she hugs him. Now, the English translation we have, scholars have have debated exactly kind of what these words are meaning. And I think that actually what we're looking at in front of us is, is a little misleading. Because Jesus says, don't cling to me. I think the feeling more is, stop clinging to me. Like, you can't just keep holding on to me forever. i got stuff to do. Like, this hug has lasted a long time. Now you're going to finally have to let me go. Because it's not inappropriate that she would want to hug him. Jesus later actually invites Thomas to come and touch him, right? So, I don't think Jesus is saying, stay away from me, Mary. It's the most natural thing for her to do. To come and to throw herself around him. She wants to be with him. She wants to worship him. She just wants to be near him. When we are overflowing with the abundance of what Jesus has done for us, it changes us. We just want to be near him. We want to be with him. We want to worship. The second thing she does is she goes and she announces. She announces the good news to others. She comes to the disciples and she says, Friends, I got some awesome news. It's not just like news that you may read that that doesn't apply to you. It's news that actually has a bearing on your life. Right? There's a difference in saying, um, wow, we've made a cancer breakthrough, and in saying, your cancer has been healed. That's different, right? And that's what Mary comes to announce. She says, the Lord, the one who fills us in all of these ways, is risen. And there's no longer lack. There's no longer scarcity. There is abundant life in him. That's exactly how we are called to respond. It's exactly how we are called. If we are full of the goodness and grace of Jesus, it's going to overflow in us. It's going to overflow in us in the way that we just want to be around him. We want to proclaim him. We want to worship him. And also, yeah, we want to talk about it. We want to announce that good news. We want to live out that good news. We want to be kind of like those sponges that are full of water. That as wherever we are, people are like, man, there's something going on with that person. Because they're just overflowing with the love of Jesus. I think that's what Jesus calls us to here. To see in many ways the way that we miss him. And we do it all the time, just like Mary did. But more importantly, to see how we can find our deepest, deepest longings in him. Our desire to be close, to be known, to be intimate. Our desire to belong, to be part of a family. And our desire to, to have guidance and leadership in our lives. The Lord gives us these things and he gives them to us abundantly. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your abundant gifts. Lord, this, uh, this question that you posed to Mary, whom are you seeking? That's a good question for us. Who are we seeking in our lives? What are we looking for to fill us? What are we looking for to, to seem like it's going to patch the things that are broken in our lives? Lord, I pray that if we're looking elsewhere, that you would redirect us. That you would blind our eyes to the idols that surround us and that you would open our eyes to you. That we might see the fullness, the abundance that you have poured out on us. Lord, we pray all those things in Jesus' name. Amen.